Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. This week, in recognition of World Suicide Prevention Day, we'll be doing a deep dive into mental health by speaking to consultant occupational and forensic psychologist, Professor Neil Greenberg. Professor Neil served in the armed forces for more than 23 years, and during which time, he was an integral part of the team that developed peer-led traumatic stress support packages, most notably Trauma Risk Management, or TRIM, for which he was awarded the Gilbert Blaine Medal. These packages are used extensively today by the armed forces, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, NHS, and wider emergency services. Professor Neil has published more than 250 scientific papers and book chapters related to the psychological health of the UK armed forces, organisational management of traumatic stress and occupational mental health. He's currently an academic psychiatrist based at King's College London, a lead advisor to UK charity Hostage UK, and sits on the board of directors for the Society of Occupational Medicine and Walking with the Wounded. Professor, uh, welcome. Welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you keeping? Very well. Thank you very much indeed for letting me um, have some time to talk. No, the, the, the pleasure is all ours, I, I assure you. Now, before we dive into your specific area of expertise, we do like to get, get a bit of a personal insight into each of our guests. So what drew you into medicine early in your career and, and what or who influenced you in taking this path? So um, actually, my dad was an accountant and my mum was a hairdresser. So uh, there, there was no doctors in the family. But I guess when I was at school, I got really sort of interested in human biology because I was just a bit of a scientist, I suppose. And then when you come to have to make a decision about what you are going to do when you've gone to college, you had to put something down on the form as pro- you know, proposed career. And I didn't really think very hard. And I just I put down to be a doctor because that was just what you had to put something in the box. And then the more I thought about it during the two years I did my A-levels, the more I thought that that was a good idea. Um, so it was a bit kind of have to just choose something rather than um, sort of looking hard to see what the right choice was. But I then managed to convince myself, I think correctly, that I, I did the right thing. Well, you, you clearly were working pretty hard at school to be able to have that uh, that flexibility and that choice to, to, to put that down. So it's great to hear. So you, you went on then to Southampton University, graduating out of there as, as a young junior doctor, and you decided to take a slightly different path than than sort of the conventional medical route and join the Royal Navy as a general duties doctor. So what was your thinking and thought process for this? As, and how does joining the armed forces differ from the more sort of conventional medical route? Um, so I, I actually joined in my second year at university. I didn't actually formally get in until the third year because the, the Navy only sponsored you for three years out of the five-year degree, which is completely reasonable. So I, I guess by the end of the first year at medical school, I'd, I'd become very aware that being a doctor meant that you were going to spend a lot of time in teams as the junior member, you know, slowly working your way up, which is all fine and good. And I must admit, I never thought that the military had uh, a medical service. I, I didn't know anyone in the military. And I, I was at home at the Christmas holidays in the second year listening to the radio. And the doctor who was on the QE2, the big cruise liner, came on the radio and talking about what sounded like a great life as a ship's doctor. And he said he'd been in the Navy. And I, I thought, gosh, I, I didn't even know the Navy had doctors. And, but my friend at university, his brother was in the Navy. So when I went back after Christmas holidays, I said to Chris, I said, Chris, did you know the Navy's got doctors? And Chris said, yeah, I'm going up to London next week to see if I can join. And I went, could I come? Um, and so we phoned up the, um, the the appointer, as they were known, and obviously they were delighted to have two people come up rather than one. Uh, and so they gave us a rail warrant and we went up to London and, and you know, again, sort of surreptitiously, it just sort of happened from there. 
So a, a bit of chance and a sliding doors moment were, was the sort of a, the benefit of the of the naval service. So it's great to hear. Now you, you clearly enjoyed your time in the navy, having served twenty three years there, uh, during which time you sort of did a variety of things. And, and one of those, you you managed to pass the all arms commando course, earning sort of your coveted green beret. Now, what was this experience like for those of our listeners who aren't particularly familiar with commando course? And what did it teach you about mental resilience as a young man? So um, as a junior doctor in the, in the Navy, you have to do three years of general duty. So I did some time on ships and time on submarine. And at the end of those three years, I was lucky enough to get uh, appointed to a Royal Marines unit. Um, now, I, again, when I was younger, I was quite chubby. Uh, I wasn't the world's fittest person. I wasn't hugely unfit, but I'd got fitter over time and particularly in the military. And the idea that I could go and do what the Royal Marines did uh, got more and more sort of to be something that I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a go. And um, and so when I went and did it, it, there's no doubt it was incredibly hard. And it's all those things that people in the military know well, you know, it's not enough sleep and too much wet and mud and all those kind of things. I guess what it taught me out of the hundred or people who so started, about 30 of us uh, completed the course. And I think it kind of showed me that even though I wasn't necessarily the best at any of these things, I had a good amount of grit and that I could keep going as indeed with many of the other people on the course who passed, even when things are pretty tough. And I, I think that was a nice thing because I, I kind of suspected as much as time went on. And, uh, but to actually sort of show that you can do it was, was, was pretty amazing. But I, I don't tend to amaze myself very much. I've done lots of good things in life. And when I meet people, they often say, oh, that's amazing. But, you know, I'm just Neil, really. I just sort of get on and, and do the things that I do. So I was pleased at the end, but perhaps, you know, not completely over, over the moon. That's very humble of you, you to say so, but that grit and determination actually is sort of 90% of the battle. Everything else to a certain extent looks after itself. And, and actually, we'll, later on in the interview, we'll, we'll come back to mental resilience. But could we briefly talk about some of your research? And I want to pay particular attention on your work on trauma risk management or, or what you know, we shortened to trim, which you are arguably most famous for. Late 90s and early 2000s, you were at the forefront of developing these peer-led traumatic stress support packages that are now in use by a plethora of organisations, the FCO, numerous police forces, the London Ambulance Service and, and the armed forces. So would you mind giving us an overview of this research and how the MOD came about taking on TRIM as, as a programme? Yeah, so actually um, the research followed, it should have been, you're quite right, you should do some research, get those findings and then implement a programme. It kind of worked the other way around. So actually, there were two fabulous army uh, individuals, uh, Norman Jones and Peter Roberts, who were army psychiatric nurses. Pete had, had left the military and was working as a civilian, and Norman was still in. And they got asked by the Royal Marines to come down and put something together for the Royal Marines. And I obviously had spent a lot of time with the Marines, had my beret and the like, and I was uh, around where Pete and Norman worked. And Pete and Norman went down and started running something different for them. Because at the time that that started in the late 1990s, the, the general understanding was that you would call in a specialist like me, a psychiatrist, when something bad had happened, and they would sit around and talk to you and try and make you better. And actually, the evidence as it, as it came out was that actually doing that was a bad idea. I'm a good psychiatrist, but if there's a nasty trauma, you don't want me descending on you and your troops. Um, you want people who are, who are like them, you know, who they can speak to doing it. And so Norman and Pete had this really good idea that what we need to do is to get Marines speaking to Marines a bit more. And I jumped on that bandwagon with them. And then I started doing the research. And so what I did was to put the, the scientific credibility onto what was a program that there was their original idea. And I went down and ran lots of the courses. And over time, what our research showed is this was a really good system because it helped improve social support 
uh, and it, it importantly started to change people's attitudes over time. So back in the late 1990s in the Marines, you know, you, you, you were going down learning how to climb up boats and snuggle around and all that kind of military stuff. But what there wasn't was a consistent message about mental health. And because the Marines took this on, it gave them a language that they could use. You know, oh, yeah, we get trimmed when something bad happens. That's what we do in the Marines. That's us. And when you went on your basic training, part of it was a senior non-commissioned officer coming down and talking about what we do in the Marines. And it, it wasn't a psychiatrist saying that, it was someone just like them, someone they wanted to be in due course. And so it slowly started to become their system. And then when it started to think about moving it into the Navy as a whole, there was some resistance in the wider Navy. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure we need that. You know, we were okay, thanks very much. And so the research was the tool to get that widely accepted in the Navy and then in the Army and the Air Force. So it started in the Marines as a good idea. We made it work and then we carried out numerous studies. Uh, I think we've got uh, about 14 published papers now on TRIM. And I think it's important to say that TRIM is really useful. It's a, a really good tool for supporting organisations. But I often say it's not penicillin for trauma. You, know, you can't tap someone on the head and make them better. But what it does do, I think, is to help the military and other organisations um, properly look after people who have been through difficult times and actually mostly just get around the lads and, and, and the lasses and, and, and to support them because if people get the right support in the first month or so, most people thankfully don't go on and become ill. There's so much to unpack there and I think what jumps out to me the most is that that change of perceptions and language and acceptance of it becoming every day and for your peers to be able to talk about it. And, and I know here, here at Centre Foreign Leadership, all the team have had first-hand experience of either being trim practitioners or, or um, on the receiving end of, of a trim process. And, and exactly to your point is breaking down those barriers and, and getting talking about it is half the battle. So it's, it's fantastic to hear you talk about it. Now, that, did you see a big difference in, in how our people coped post-operations because of this programme? So, yeah, I, I, I think that... that any of these programs when they get introduced, the, the differences take time to sort of bed in. And, and I think what are the research, so I work, my, my academic home is the is King's College London, it's the King Centre for Military Health Research. And what we've been doing is studying military personnel for lots of years, but particularly since the 2003 Iraq and then Afghanistan uh, sort of kicked off. And so we've done lots of waves of surveying. And we have found, obviously, that some people go on and develop post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or other difficulties but actually the rate, we don't find rates where it's like a ticking time bomb or an explosion or a tidal wave as the daily mail would often describe it yes people do get affected and actually one of the reasons that actually the impact on mental health may not have been as severe as you would find say in u.s military may be because we have a system like trim that has been around protecting us it's very hard to link cause and effect because you'd need to have two British militaries, one with trim and one without, uh, to know that. To know that. And I think there's been lots of things that have gone on uh, over time that have improved the forces' mental health. But I am absolutely sure that trim is one of them. And certainly in my work with, um, say, the, the BBC and uh, with uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office, you know, their introduction to trim over time has also made it. You can see has made a real big difference. And their senior management have bought into it not because I want to sell it to them, because they've seen that effect uh, and, 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 and they're convinced too that it's made a positive um, difference to their people. Uh, that, that's great to hear. And, and you touched on, on sort of the Iraq and Afghanistan campaigns there. And if I could turn to, 
to just that and very topical and very emotive subject at the moment, Afghanistan. Now, the scenes we've all seen all over the news in Kabul over the last few weeks and, and the brilliant work that uh, 16 Assault Brigade and Joint Force Headquarters did. But the situation there has been, I would argue, nothing short of heartbreaking and deeply unsettling for many of our Afghan veterans. Now, I appreciate that everyone is different. Everyone processes and, and deals with things in a, in a different manner. But, but how will our veterans on the whole be sort of processing uh, what's been going on and what can our young leaders who are potentially leading these veterans who have never had a reference point of being to Afghanistan help support them through this process? I think I think the most military personnel would accept that actually their job is to go and do their duty, support their colleagues and do the best they can for their six-month tour or whatever long the tour is that they do. The ability to, to change a nation's direction in life you know, is beyond, you know, even even a four-star general probably can't do that. Um, so what I would hope is that those of us who have served out there would say, you know, we did the best we could at the time. And yes, absolutely, it's sad that it hasn't turned out in the way that we would have wanted it to. But there have been some positives. Terrorism, you know, of a scale we saw on 9-11 hasn't happened uh, 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 since, not on that scale. Um, there was also a, ge- a generation, you know, 20 years worth of uh, Afghan Afghan nationals who have perhaps seen a future they could have and they've gone to school and they've got better education so we have to hope that actually we have made a difference but most importantly we can't be responsible for the diplomatic outcomes of, of what is a hellishly complicated part of the world as we know you know this is not the only time that there's been battles in Afghanistan uh, and so I think that we should look back and say we did our duty we, we did as good as we could and you know Things don't always work out. We know that. <laughs> life, life teaches us that all the time. And, and hopefully doing that rather than focusing too much on just what has gone wrong is a much better way, I think, of, of trying to think about you know, one's duty service. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And, and you, you've touched on some, some of your wider work. But if, if I could unpack that a little bit more, and, and you carried out extensive work on trauma risk management outside of the armed forces and some some fascinating case studies, for example, your SME input uh, to the Foreign Office after, not, after 9-11, uh, you mentioned the Foreign Office earlier, assisted the London Ambulance Service in the wake of the London bombings in 2005, and most recently developed and led the staff mental health strategy at the London Nightingale Hospital during the, the COVID-19 crisis. Some really high profile and, uh, and stressful moments in history. Now, from your experience in, in all these fields, what can our leaders learn from, from other organisations about Trim? I, th- I, th- I think in, in terms of trim, I, th- I think um, it's easy to, to kind of see it as something useful when you need it. But when it's when there's no trauma, when there's no crisis, it's easy to forget about it and put it somewhere at the back of the cupboard and, and not to keep it nice and sparkly. And I think what the military should see is that given the fact that you're always going to go to places where there's going to be challenges and threats, that actually it should become as routine uh, as, as upgrading your, um, your, your rifle to the next version. So I think it, it needs to keep uh, to be at the front of our minds, the front of the military's minds, as, as a force enabler, just as all the other force enablers that you have. And I guess what I, I don't worry about, but what I get concerned about, I think, over time is, is that once, once um, our deployments to horrible places kind of go out of the limelight, it'll be easy to forget about it. And then we'll end up having to reinvent the wheel in, in, uh, you know, in some years' time. One of the good things about working with the Foreign Office is that they routinely have 
trim deployments. They send trim personnel out to support people because they, they're in parts of the world, you know, over the world, and, and they go to the trouble spots. And, and actually, the military does the same, doesn't it? You know, there's always people somewhere around the world doing something people probably shouldn't for. Um, and, um, and, and so I think we need, the military needs to see that as kind of part of what we do. It's what keeps us strong and, and to keep on developing it because human psychology uh, changes a bit over time. We understand more. And I, I think this is a, a sort of a funny take on resilience is that I think in the past, not just the military, a lot of organisations have seen resilience as people who don't need help. You know, they just crack on no matter what. I think the future um, sort of view of resilience, which Trim fits into, is actually seeing people who recognise that they do need help rather than ignore it. And they go and get the help they need and then they crack on. Uh, the same as, you know, for your, if your ankle's a bit dodgy and you just keep running on it, you're going to do yourself some damage. But if you go to the physio and get it sorted, then you, then you crack on. And so that's where I hope that, that trim and mental health in the military goes as, as something that is, it's just what we do because we're human beings. And guess what? We have emotions and negative thoughts because we're like everybody else. It's fascinating because there's, there's so much synergy there with some of our wider work, not just uh, on the sort of mental resilience side, but uh, our sort of research and academic side on leadership. And it, all comes down to that self-awareness and leading yourself before leading others is so, so important. So having that self-awareness, or that, whether that, as you touched on the physical side or, or the mental side, is arguably the sort of foundation of building blocks to, to success. If I could just touch on one more question there, is, is there a difference cross-generation in, and you, and you said about how people deal with things differently, is there a, a stark difference in the generations that, that we're seeing come through in, into the services from those that have gone before? Um, I, I think there is. I think that the, the people who have joined you know, since 2003 are, are much more likely, they're still not very likely, but they're much more likely to, to seek help at an earlier stage. And I think their they're superiors, you know, their team leaders, their officers, I think are also much more likely to be able to spot people who might have difficulties. And rather than tell them that they're useless and should just crack on, to actually ask the question, you okay, mate, you know, what's up? Um, so I, I, th I think things are positive. When we look at um, data, for instance, uh, on uh, veterans, you've heard of the organisation Combat Stress. You know, so they deal with mental health problems in a lot of veterans. And they, they, up until sort of recently, always used to say it took 13 years for someone to come, have left service, to come and get help for their mental health problems. Well, our data looking at Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, which we did a couple of years ago, shows it takes on average two years now to get help. That's still two years too long, but actually that's a, the direction of travel is right. Um, which brings us back to actually in the military, you, you absolutely need to have good systems and good leadership and trim and all those sort of things. But you also need good mental health services for the people who come and get the care because you don't want to be waiting for six months. You want to go and get your care quickly and, and crack on. It's good news that it sounds like we're going in the right direction. Still improvements to be made, but that's great to hear. Now, I'd like to turn to, to mental resilience, if I may, and talk a little bit broader, perhaps uh, more than just about bottom field and Limpston or 30 mile, the 30 mile that you'll remember fondly. As you'll know, the Army has uh, come a long way regarding mental resilience training. And we have a new framework under OpSmart that you'll know and be familiar with that provides mental resilience training for all of our soldiers all throughout their career from basic training all the way through. Now, for our listeners, would you mind just just sort of on a, on a macro level, discussing what mental resilience training is, just so that we set those foundations. Yeah, so the mental resilience training on, in, in OpSmart is, is about giving people individual skills that enables them to cope with adversity, you know, in a better or at least a different way to the way they've always done it. Um, and so that might be thinking about things differently. It might be ways to distract yourself. It might be being more in the moment rather than worrying about all the things you can't change. 
And those individual um, sort of techniques can be really useful. Now, the challenge for not just the army, but the challenge for, for organizations is if you only give people those individual skills, but you don't change anything else, then it's pointless trying to, you know, if you're trying to use mindful thinking to get over a, a six foot wall, but someone's shouting at you all the time, rather than, then it's, it's still very difficult. So the, the, if the whole system, which I know the army has, is buying into Opsmart, then actually their potential there is it could do an awful lot of good. But it needs to be seen as part of a system rather than the system in itself. And you can often think about resilience at individual level, like the Opsmart level, but also at team level as well. And of course, the military is full of teamwork, isn't it? And so if they both work together, then you've got a really strong package. But you've got to be careful not to just make it rely on any one part of that. that yeah, that makes absolute sense. And, and arguably, there's that sort of symbiotic relationship between that individual resilience and, and the team resilience. And CGS in a, a conference uh, this year spoke about resilience being the ability for an individual organization to absorb a shock digest it and move on quickly. And, and that absolutely plays to that. And, and you've touched on my next question there, but how much importance sh- should our leaders place on, on mental resilience training when they're trying to juggle several different priorities on a daily basis, you'll, you'll remember it fondly, when there isn't enough time to get everything done? And, and what advice would you give them about incorporating into their sort of their regular training programs? I think this is all about um, a more of a sort of business term, which is the return on investment. Because actually, if you see it as a yet another thing you have to do to get done, otherwise it, it doesn't look good, then I agree that that's going to make it very difficult. But actually, if he, if the and the research backs this up, you know, if you can find that actually spending 20 minutes on yourself, reorientating the way you're thinking about it, isn't 20 wasted minutes, because actually the next two hours afterwards are twice as effective as they would have been otherwise, then the return of investment is clear. And the the same goes, you know, if you talk about resilience um, at any level, if, if you send a soldier to the mental health team and they are not deployable for four months, gosh, you've lost a soldier, that's terrible. But if you don't, and then they leave the service early, you've lost the soldier forever. So it's about trying to see it as something to enable you to do a better job rather than just something else to do on the ticket. Now, as you've mentioned earlier, there are several, uh, several factors that have an impact on an individual's day-to-day mental health. Uh, for example, we, we often speak in the army about having good physical fitness, as you'd expect, not spending too much time on social media, sleeping well, and having a good balanced diet. How much of an impact do these factors have on an individual's mental health? And are we doing enough to educate our people in this area? So, so I think this is actually a really important the sort of the, the medical term is homeostasis, which is you know, the keeping the internal aspects of the body ticking over. So you can be as fit as you like, can't you? But if you go out and have a, a keg of beer the night before, you're not going to run your best uh, 1.5 miles. It's just it's just not going to happen. So I think that actually the, the, the playing careful balance to you know, nutrition and uh, well-being, I, I think psychological as well as physical. So eating well, you know, mixing with the right people, as you say, turning off social media and doing those sorts of things. I think what they do is give you a really good base rock for then absorbing more difficult stresses as and when they occur. Um, you know, you've heard the term hangry, I'm sure, you know, for people who are hungry and angry at the same time. You know, and it, it's kind of funny, but at the same time, it's just so true. You know, how on earth can we think clearly when we're actually what we really want to do is to get a piece of food down our, 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 our necks, really? So I, I think what rather than see it as an all or nothing, you must always eat well, you must never drink any alcohol, which is just not achievable. I think what you're trying to look here is that, you know, over the week, you know, balance it up a bit. 
You know, if you're going to go out for that big meal, then don't do that four nights in a row. I mean, that, I mean everyone would say, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. So I, I would see it as a balancing act, uh, which is important rather than an all or nothing. Now, if I may, I'd like to turn to what is the most important part of this interview. Now, it's no coincidence that we will release this episode at the same time, around the same time as World Suicide Prevention Day, uh, around the 10th of September, as we really want to help bring some, some awareness to the subject. It's pretty common knowledge that suicide rates amongst veterans and serving soldiers are high in comparison to some other sectors. For example, in the last 20 years, we've had close to 300 suicides of serving personnel across the MOD. Now, one suicide is too many, and 300 is just desperately sad. So you've led some really extensive research in this field. So why is it so high? And is it purely down to dealing with the sort of operational stresses that, that we've touched on previously, or are there other factors that contribute to it? So the, the answer to this, is, sorry, it sounds a bit psychiatrist, is it's complicated. You know, there, so there, there, there isn't a simple answer. And actually, there, there are, uh, if you speak to suicide experts, most of the ones who, who, who know a lot about it will say, it's really easy to try and jump on a particular bandwagon and say, if only you'd done this, then it never happened. But actually, it's often a lot more complicated. I think the thing we have to see is, first of all, who is it who joins the art? You know, often uh, they, they have challenging backgrounds, they might have some childhood adversity, you know, they might have some difficulties, and perhaps they're even joining the military to get away from those. And so in those sorts of individuals, unfortunately, whether they join the military or not, they're at increased risk. You know, so we know that people who have very challenging backgrounds um, are more likely to have mental health problems and they're more likely to, to unfortunately end their life by suicide. Um, but actually, once they're in, then on average, compared to someone who wasn't in, you get an awful lot more support and supervision and actually you get paid, which is, uh, which is good. And you, know, you get to do things that hopefully most of the time you want to do, not always. So actually being in the military itself should be slightly protective. And when we look at the data for suicides for the still serving, we don't find uh, an increase compared to the, the, the general population when you're still serving. It used to be that in the army, young men, at a higher rate than the general population, but that's no longer true. The rate is still high. And so I would agree with you, every suicide is, is, is one death that just should never have happened. But I think it's important to note that unfortunately in society generally, that after accidents, suicide is the most likely reason that you'll die before the age of 40. Um, and so I think, where, where does that all leave you? you know, rather than just say, gosh, it's complicated. But where it leads you, I think, is that there are often, um, sort of opportunities for, for intervention which we can make a difference. We don't always know their suicide interventions at the time, but you see someone who's a bit sad, you know, do you go up and ask them how they're doing or do you think, oh, that's none of my business? You know, if you're an officer in charge of something and someone gets called to your office because they've acted completely unreasonably, do you start off by telling them off or do you start off by asking them what's up? So I think if we aim to try and improve the mental health and mental resilience of the whole force, we will go a long way towards reducing the chance that someone uh, will, will unfortunately end their life by suicide. Um, and I think it's important not to jump on there on a bandwagon of thinking it's all about Afghanistan, the rat complex. In fact, when you look at the data and the US spend a lot more time looking at their data, they, they've got a bigger force. Actually, there isn't a good link between deployment and ending your life. Um, it, you know, there are lots of other reasons are going on. So I, th I think, yes, Afghanistan and Iraq and, and the, the unpleasant things that happen over there have a part to play. But I, I don't think that we should jump to think that it's all about deployment, because I think it's more about social factors, you know, difficulties in the workplace and also the person who, who they were before they joined. With, with what you've just unpacked there and, the, and sort of being data led, 
what then uh, for our, for our leaders across the army? What are the three key actions that they should do to protect the mental health of their teams? Yeah. So I, I I think that I think if I if I from corporal upwards, large corporal upwards, I think everybody who is in a supervisory position should have either naturally or have some training to have the skills to have what I call a psychologically savvy chat. So they should be able to go to the conversation to be, how are you doing? I'm fine. And they don't go, oh, that's great. They should be able to unpick that. Really? You know, you're really fine. Your missus has just left you. you know. So they should be able to have a, a meaningful conversation about mental health. They should feel competent to do that. Uh, I don't think that takes an awful lot to do. We did um, a research project and did some, uh, some training for the NHS over the last year and a half because of COVID. Uh, we did a study where we uh, did this one-hour training package delivered by Zoom. It's called REACT. It stands for Recognise, Engage, Active, Listen, Check, Risk. We'll talk about that soon. So it's one-hour training course uh, with a bit of practice, and that led uh, to almost doubling the percentage of supervisors who felt confident to speak about mental health. So that, and that's a one-hour bite-sized package. So everyone, all supervisors speak about mental health, being able to speak confidently about mental health. The second is peer support. Now, you've got this great trim system that is well rolled out. Um, yes, it's good for when a bad incident happens, but it's also perfectly good for situations where life's a bit stressful. You know, you're away on a six-month deployment. Why not get your trim practitioners to every month to check on each other, to check on the teams? They're there, they're trained, you know, that's something they could do. So to use peer support and don't just say, oh, yeah, I can speak to anybody, but try and make it a bit more, not in your face, but at least a bit more proactive rather than saying, come and see me if you've got a problem. And then the third thing is to do what we call reflective practice, which is um, after any incident that happens in the military, there, there's often a, you know, a tactical debrief, what went right, what went wrong, how do we fix that, which is great. But actually, how often do you talk about the impact? Do you know that was really tough? And actually, you know, that looked just like my son or that looked just like my daughter. So actually to talk about the emotional impact. I know that's a kind of funny thing to do, perhaps as a, as a first off. But if the leader leads that and says, you know what, um, team, I have to just say, I found that really difficult. Now, you might see that as a non-leader thing to do. Actually, that's setting a, a good um, sort of example for how, how you want other people to do. And actually, once you've had that discussion, you then move on. So good supervision in terms of being able to speak about mental health, using your peer support actively rather than just letting it to be around and making sure you speak about the impact of things once in a while rather than just speak about what went right and what went wrong. It's fascinating because what's interesting is, uh, and you'll remember it fondly, we, we're very good at after-action reviews when it comes to training, tactical actions and, and, and the stuff that, we, that, that we're very familiar with, but we don't do it, as you've just discussed, on a, on a sort of psychological and, and emotional level. So absolute brilliant advice because I, I just think we, perhaps we need to change that mindset into, into getting that into, into best practice. You just covered three brilliant bits of advice there for our, our leaders that, that have that support network of the armed forces around them. And I appreciate you've, you've already covered some of this, but for former members of the armed forces, what can society do to help prevent these suicide rates? Because as you've alluded to, they're higher in, um, they're as high in society as they are in the armed forces. And equally amongst the veterans, I, I don't every one of the, the cow team here has been touched with a former veteran who's unfortunately committed suicide. So what can they do and what can wider society do to help prevent this? Again, unfortunately, the answers are complex. If you just take an example of why they're complex, after 2008, when there was a big recession in the, in the, in the UK, the suicide rate went up. Now, that was because people's lives were wrecked. They, they were, went into poverty, they lost their jobs, they lost their houses. So 
fixing that isn't a mental health intervention. That's a governmental intervention that I know nothing about how you sort the economics of a country. And, and one of the fears is after COVID that actually people are losing their jobs is that we may see it again a spike in suicides, not because of the horror of COVID, but because people lose their jobs. And so we, again, I, obviously sorting out the country's social and financial difficulties is, is a great thing. It, it's beyond me to do it. But what we can do is again, use that approach of being compassionate and kind and and actually asking people what's up before we tell them what's wrong or what they've done wrong. And actually, if we show a bit more interest in each other, then actually we may get a chance that someone will reveal a piece of information to us that we can then act on and, and, and save their life. Um, and I think alongside that, um, what we know we also have to do is to make sure that people who are in high risk situations, you know, so, so, so veterans who have been made homeless, for instance, or a veteran who's just having the most huge difficulty accessing a mental health service because they just can't seem to find the work right way in those people are at higher risk so that's when you need to have a buddy uh, or, or someone who can you know metaphorically put their arm around you and say you know i'm here for you let's talk about it and let's try and solve the problem that's causing your distress rather than just talk about how distressing it is um so i think it's identifying that the higher risk people and and trying to help them to solve the difficulties and the good news is for veterans is Actually, there are many, many veteran charities out there. Some don't feel that they can, that they, they, they have the, um, the sort of right to access them. I mean, I've heard from veterans I've spoken to, I couldn't go for Help for Heroes because I don't think I've been heroic in the slightest. Well, that, you know, that's not what Help for Heroes is actually for. It's for any veteran. And there's something called the Veterans Gateway, which is a single point of contact. So, you know, when you've lost all hope and there's no, there's, you don't know what to do, why not give them a call? Because or get online and use them because do you know what they might have an answer that might solve your problem you'll be then less distressed and then less likely to go on and do something dire as well and you've again you've, you've just touched on on the next question there but but what advice would you give to anyone listening to this who may be currently struggling or, or having negative thoughts um I, th I think for most of us, if we're struggling having negative thoughts, we can A, engage our own coping, things that we've done before. You know, what do we do? Maybe we go for a run if we can. Maybe we speak to our, our best friend, Simon or Sandra, because they always pick my spirits up. Maybe we turn our social media off, because actually I don't need to see what the COVID rates are today, because, you know, it's just not going to make my mental health any better. So we take some, take some actions uh, that, that can make things a bit better for ourselves. The next thing we do is we reach out to people who, who we think are a sensible head and to ask them for a bit of their time. You know, have you got a moment? Um, because uh, actually having that conversation, if someone came to you most of the time, you'd, you'd be happy to give them that time. So reach out to people who might be their sense. And then the third thing is, if none of those seem to work, is then give the Veterans Gateway a, a call, you know, phone the, the combat stress have got a, a, a helpline. There are, there are so many helplines and access points out there that um, you, there really are people who, who will speak to you. But sitting at home, staring at the same wall all the time is unlikely to lead to the solution. So try the things yourself, speak to people who you know, and then reach out to some professional veterans gateway be in the first place, because there is stuff out there that can make a really positive difference. Fantastic. Now, now before I let you go, uh, it is customary that we, we ask all our guests our, our, our quick fire questions. So, so if I may, who is the best leader that you've ever known or worked with and why? So when I was a junior medical officer, I served in HMS Spartan, which was a hunter-killer submarine. We went away for seven months and got very smelly uh, for a long time. And the uh, captain on there was a, was a chap called Commander Peter Hinchcliffe, uh, who was a great guy. He was on his last tour, actually, so as a, as a, as a, 
as a submarine captain. And he he really did put people first. So, you know, he absolutely got the mission done, but he put people first. And I'll, I'll just give you a little dip, which is, so we were in the Gulf uh, having done some things and we were exercising with some Americans. Uh, and we stayed underwater and there's American aircraft carrier out there. And we had to get within 10,000 yards of it so we could fire a, a force torpedo to sink it. It never came within 10,000 yards of us. It knew where we were because we had these boxes on the charts. So he broke the rules and we went across the box into, his, into the American box and we sunk the American uh, aircraft carrier. Anyway, on, on, the, on, the, on the radio um, comes a message, you know, uh, Captain, uh, could you come and speak? It's the American Admiral wants to have a word with you. So he flipped it on main broadcast and he got a bollocking from the American Admiral, you know, which we all thought was absolutely great. And he knew what was coming and, and he just knew how to get a team to rally around what he did. And, and that's why he was such a great leader in my view. Amazing dip. Defence engagement at its best. Yeah. <laughs> Most inspirational leader from history and why? Uh, I know it sounds a bit boring, but actually I think Churchill, and, and the reason I say Churchill is I think that anyone who can lead a nation through you know, years of being at war when it, it just seems like there's no way out and it's dark and suffer from depression at the same time, I, I think is worthy of all the admiration we can give him. I actually recently went to the, uh, the uh, war rooms in, in London and actually there's a great exhibition there on Churchill. And I think what's very clear to me um, as a psychiatrist, he was also a functioning alcoholic. That he drank alcohol, you know, morning, noon, and night. Um, but in spite of that, I think he did an amazing thing to lead our country. And he wasn't afraid to make what were very difficult decisions. And clearly, the outcome was the right one. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And sort of mental resilience at, at its best. There, most valuable leadership lesson pertaining to mental health and suicide you have learned. I, I think the most valuable lesson uh, in, in terms of suicide and in terms of mental health is to, is to do what I said, is to start off by asking. Why? Asking questions rather than jumping to assumptions. It's very easy sometimes. Um, and I remember, I, I'm not proud of it at all, when I was a junior medical officer, one of the uh, chaps that I was, I was in charge of, I was a petty officer, you know, did something really bad. And, and I, I, I started off by you know, not shouting, but, you know, why did you do that? Actually, it turns out that he had a lot of problems going on. And once I knew that, I was, I was incredibly sympathetic. But I should have asked that question first. So I think don't jump to don't jump to conclusions. Ask people, and by all means, if they then deserve some discipline, by all means, give it to them. But don't just jump in there. Now, with hindsight, what would you tell a young Professor Greenberg, fresh out of med school, about leadership and mental health? I think what I'd say to him is uh, join the navy because I had a good time and it taught me a lot of things. Uh, and I, I think that actually, the more you can, and this is you know stuff that everyone in the military is in leadership position. No, the, the the more that actually you can have a relationship with people which is not just about work uh, so you know you can share a joke you can share a dit you can share comedy that it doesn't have to be serious all the time um and i i try my best and I, i've got better at trying to lighten the mood sometimes when things seem really dark you know when things aren't going right because actually if things haven't gone right they haven't gone right you, know, it, you can look at it in a dark way but actually if you can bring a bit of humor and then try and crack on that's a lot better than just dwelling on how terrible things are I think many of us have seen over the last 18 months with COVID that there are lots of reasons to we could be very upset. But actually, on the other hand, there's also lots of reasons that we could be very happy. And I guess it's our choice about which one we choose to dwell on. I have a firm belief that, that leaders are dealers in hope and, and you have to be able to bring a, bring a smile and, and a laugh to your people's faces. So, so that absolutely resonates with me. And finally, what is society's biggest leadership challenge in reducing suicide rates in the future? Gosh, I, th- I think probably the, the biggest challenge for society actually are not mental health ones. They're back to the um, the sort of equality, fairness, 
you know, finances. Actually, if we can make everything run in a, in a better and fairer way, it would never be fully fair, obviously, because never get there. I think that that is likely to make the biggest difference on suicide. You know, if we could end child poverty, all these really big things, that's much more important than employing two more psychiatrists in the NHS. Um, so I think we need to focus on, on those things a bit. But at the same time, we're going to need people like me to pick up some of the pieces some of the time. Incredible stuff. Professor Neil, it's been fascinating talking to you today. And I just say a huge thank you for not only talking to us, but also for, for all your work and research into trim mental health, into suicide prevention. It's had a, an immeasurable impact on our people and, and it's an incredible legacy that, you, that you've left behind. Thank you. Most welcome. Thank you as well. A huge amount to digest there from Professor Neil and what a privilege it was speaking to such a world-renowned figure within mental health. I think we would all agree that looking after the mental health and well-being of our people is one of the most important things we do as leaders. The Centre for Army Leadership are firm advocates of the Armed Forces Trauma Risk Management or TRIM process. So to hear Professor Neil talk about the origins and academic rig behind the programme was really reassuring to hear. However, he does warn that TRIM is not penicillin for mental health and that leaders must work hard on a day-to-day -day basis to support their people. He stressed the importance of peer support and how leaders at all levels should be proactive with their TRIM programmes as opposed to using it in a reactive way to traumatic incidences, which is what we have arguably done in the past. He goes on to highlight the importance of knowing and communicating with your people and discusses the necessity for leaders to have what he calls psychological savvy chats. He urges people to probe initial superficial responses and get to the heart of potential issues that your people may be hiding. He stresses the importance of our leaders having regular and meaningful conversations about mental health and how they should have the confidence to speak in an open and transparent way about the subject, setting the example for our people to follow. I was also struck by Professor Neil's comments on after-action reviews. We in the military have a healthy after-action review culture when it comes to training and exercises, but we're yet to expand it into our mental health approach. He rightly points out that if leaders were to be more open and transparent about their feelings and the mental health and emotional impact of events, it would resonate with their followers and set the example for them to follow. Professor Neil tackled the sobering subject of suicide and gave invaluable advice for people who may be struggling with their mental health, highlighting the importance of people being compassionate and kind. Professor Neil also discussed the social factors, such as a recession, that can contribute to people taking their own life highlighting that the reasons for suicide are often complex and layered. He goes on to discuss suicides within the veteran community and shone a light on the Veterans Gateway, a single point of contract for veterans who may be struggling with their mental health. Finally, it was fantastic to hear that the armed forces are heading in the right direction for implementing mental health support for our people. We can, of course, always improve, but it's really refreshing to hear that we are making positive steps forward. And as Professor Neil himself says, be compassionate, be kind. If you're listening to this and would like more information on the Veterans Gateway and other mental health support information, please check out this episode's bio. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. That would be much appreciated. For more information on leadership in the British Army, do visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership. And of course, follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.